Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com starts. I'm not Kara Swisher, but yes, you are listening to Sway. This is Naima Raza, Sway's showrunner. Kara's recovering from a cold, so while she did tape this interview on death's doorstep, she asked me to fill in for the intro. Our conversation today is about a topic that has too often been reduced to, quote, woke capitalism. Whether it's McDonald's pausing its burger business in Russia, Major League Baseball leaving Georgia over voting rights, or Disney's debacle with the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, these days it seems like corporations have had to become our conscience. Kara discusses this trend with our guest, Jeffrey Sodenfeld, also known as the CEO Whisperer. He's a professor of leadership at the Yale School of Management. He convenes CEO forums and he consults with big bosses at Fortune 500 companies. As it turns out, he's something of a moral compass for them. These days, Sonnenfeld and his team are busy compiling a corporate watch list of companies who have taken a stand on Putin's invasion of Ukraine and those that haven't followed through. So we wanted to ask him what the end goal is with this list and press him on whether we really can rely on profit-seeking CEOs for political change. Now, over to Kara. Jeffrey, welcome to Sway. Thanks, I'm delighted to join you, Kara. We talked a lot over the course of the Ukraine situation about what's happening there. First of all, explain what you've been doing with the list that you've been compiling. Well, you know, as you know, I've been tracking business uh, social impact We've always tried to separate out who's really doing something and who isn't. And as you know, war broke out on February 24th. Immediately, there was three sets of companies that moved very quickly. And they weren't the three that I would have ever predicted would have been the early movers. That was shocking. And then I saw a lot of the Klingon effect. A lot of companies that had their artful PR people create lookalike images of things that sounded like they were doing something too, but they really weren't. And we thought, you know, let's just create a list that chronicles and separates out who's really done something and who's not. So just data of who's really done something. Who are the three companies? Well, the three sets were energy. I mean, when do you see the oil companies as the early movers on social change? And the three particular players in the oil were BP, Shell, and Exxon. And they left a lot on the table to do it. The second set, which was pretty surprising, is everything from the big heavy metal you know, device companies to the uh, the platforms and social media. And the third cluster are the professional service firms, the, the, the lawyers and the accountants and uh, the consultants. These folks would usually rather jump off a cliff than be identified with political controversy. And those three clusters were the first movers. So what was your goal here, to celebrate them or shame the rest? Well, I wanted to first just calibrate and certify that they were, in fact, truly moving. So that was the first thing, was just to make sure this is this reporting is accurate. But it turns out you're exactly right. It had a salutary effect on the early movers. It gave them confidence. The wannabe early movers that often had nervous boards, you know, on that corporate speak word of benchmarking, this gave them peer affirmation. So they those CEOs could back to their boards and say, hey, look, 
we're not going to be out there on some limb or, you know, the tall poppy syndrome as the Australians call it. We're not going to get cut down the scale because we've stepped out in front. We're going to be with the thundering herd. And then it also had an unexpectedly punitive effect as a hall of shame of sorts. So the list went viral. Over 400 companies have since pulled out. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it's actually almost approaching 500. Many of the changes are marginal at this point. There are very few that are the big changes. We, what we had to do, and I should explain that, is originally we just had a dichotomist who has curtailed and who has who's not. But now we realize that because of clever public relations spin and some corporate challenges, there were some different levels. So we now have five different categories, almost like an A, B, C, D, and F ratings. Right. So we're going to get to those specifically in a minute. But you hosted a large CEO forum this week. Now, I think you can't talk about specifics because this was an off-the-record thing, but can you give us some high-level ideas of what was happening with these CEOs, with what's happening in Ukraine? There's inflation. There's all kinds of things. The runaway biggest concern that they had had to do with supply chain issues. It was a a huge spike of concern of the ripple effects in global supply chains because of uh, being on the edge of World War III that had them quite alarmed. Also, there's a major shift uh, it was almost universal that people are rethinking their global strategies. People are dramatically pushing for a domestic uh, a self-reliance, which would have been seen as Neanderthal in the 1990s. And we had a, a wild spectrum there from hospitality, uh, airlines and hotels and uh, information technology uh, companies and lots of uh, sort of uh, creative new startups and professional services. So, And we looked for industry differences. Uh, This was one weird, rare time. There was such unanimity here that it was shocking. And these were largely Western companies, correct? Oh, yeah, it was Europe or U.S. and one Asian company, uh, major company, but yeah. So there's self-selection in that in terms of what's going on, correct? There's self-selection in this particular in-person conversation because this was not uh, hybridized. However, um, the list that we've created, which started out as being purely European and U.S., of course, envelops the whole world. And it is more global than we have the ready competencies to unravel. So let's do a lightning round of the bigger players on your list. I want to give your take on how they're doing and what more they could be doing. All right, BP, they've suspended operations completely. Shockingly, leaving billions on the table. What grade would you give them? Both by being a first mover and by the drama of the cutback. We give them, you know, an A on our list if we're doing the grading, but it's a complete withdrawal, category one, clean break. It was impressive. And frankly, I wouldn't have seen that in prior leadership of BP for a lot of obvious reasons. All right. Amazon. Uh, Amazon, it's, uh, it was surprising that they were in the lead and pulled out when they did. So that's been a cutback, but it's not as uh, dramatic. I think they're, they ha- still have um, some degree of AWS engagement, but very little. But they're keeping their options open, correct? Yeah. So they haven't said that this is a permanent withdrawal. They've suspended operations. Right. So is that a good job or a bad job? I think that's a great. We'd give it a BB plus. Okay. McDonald's, which was such an important company in Russia for anyone who remembers Glasnost, et cetera. Now watch out. You're dealing with a school teacher. Do we do okay. an hour on that one? Uh, because no, no, it's, no. stop me when you need to on that one. Because McDonald's is a very complicated but fascinating saga. They are representative of this post-perestroika symbolism, believe it or not, of Western liberal values of freedom and the rest. 
your colleague, Tom Friedman, who was famous for his golden arches rule of diplomacy, his theory was, you know, any two countries with McDonald's don't go to war with each other. Oh, that didn't work. That did not work. It didn't work there or anywhere else. And McDonald's persisted. And it was only through public shame that Chris Kapinski is a very good new CEO there realized they had to respond. So you got to- So what grade? What grade would you give them on that? McDonald's, you know, even though they were late, you know, I think they deserve at least a B. So they're, in a, you know, in our second category. And their their restaurants, Russia could take over. And then they have a, a logo that looks like McDonald's, correct? Uncle Vanya's, is that correct? Yeah, and that's, uh, see, that's why we don't give them a an A. And they're also paying their people to do nothing there. Their original employees, over 50,000 people, that doesn't quite do what we all would have needed for a top, you know, A categorization or complete withdrawal, because that's still still pumping cash into the economy. The well-intended, perhaps, explanation for that is we don't want to cut off loyal, long-service employees uh, who are innocent, not a part of all this. I don't buy that. There's a famous book called Hitler's Willing Executioners, which is that the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Third Reich, is not all attributed to Hitler. It was the complicity of the everyday uh, German at that time uh, and the complicity here of Russians to want to support these people by paying them salaries is not what needs to be done. It we need to, to stop civil hurt. society, make it hurt. Right. Okay. J&J, Pfizer, Merck, all you categorize as buying time. What does that mean? They have uh, cut back on their clinical trials. They have some partnerships. They have uh, forestalled uh, future investment, but we would uh, hope for more. And I, by the way, I love those companies. They've obviously been heroic on the vaccine front. And I've talked with the CEOs of each of the companies you mentioned or their recent past CEOs, their chairs. And um, they have humanitarian explanations, but I don't buy them. Okay, so great. That's a D. A D. Oh, that's like an F, Jeff. That's an F. You know that, a D is an F. Yeah, they're right on the borderline, you know, so it says C minus then if you want to call them that, but because uh, they aren't intending to do harm, but they should completely shut down and they don't understand the purpose of this, you know, so. Okay, what about the tech platforms? Meta didn't choose to leave, but the Russians banned Facebook and Instagram. Is that a good thing, even though it's denying people access to information? Well, you know, one famous uh, expert on this space once said, there's the right way to do something, and then there's the Facebook meta way to do something. You ever hear that one? Is it from me? It sounds <laughs> <Yes>! like me. <laughs> <laughs> it is you. Uh, and I, I hope it was for you because I attribute it to you all the time. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, and in this case, I've gotten some blowback because Cloudfair has stayed. Citrix stayed till till yeah. quite late and finally moved. Cogent came out quickly. Oracle. I mean, yeah. really? Larry Ellison? I mean, that I wouldn't have thought, but they're saying, well, it's important to maintain cloud platforms for at least the possibility of free flow of information to go through there. Even this morning, I got some folks arguing that we're too unidimensional on when it comes to that space. So I'm not sure in terms of the truth there. Meaning some should stay in order to give people access to information. Right. Yeah. So we're being purists right now. Although it's, let's just be clear, it's non-voluntary. They've been kicked out, some of these companies. Some were, were kicked out. But that it's a challenge as to whether or not some who have stayed, like the Cloudfare who stayed, if that's a good or a bad thing. And right now, Cloudfare is feeling more virtuous as if somehow that the IBMs, Dells, Oracles, and others that were providing their web support, their cloud support are not, are somehow evil. I think those companies are doing the right thing. They should, this company should, this country should be a pariah and everything should be cut. Well, talk about that because how much of the business flight from Russia is rooted in corporate morality versus 
just sheer business pragmatism. And for those who stay, and we'll get to the Coke industries in a second, opportunity for new business. I think um, the early movers, uh, some of them may have had some oligarchical engagement that they wanted to preemptively avoid the bad press on, but they moved so quickly they were right effective on that front that it came off looking like it was uh, based in responsibility and ethics. So I give them the benefit of the doubt on that. Same with the professional service firms. Some people say it's clouded because they have surviving entities that are now uh, separated out from the company. Who cares? The, the global company severed ties, which is the right thing. They're not going to be part of the global support mechanisms. And the thing that made those companies so valuable was their global branding that gave investors and others trust in them. And if that's severed, that's great. Yeah. So what it was a grade you would give tech overall, although it's quite, they're very different, the cogents from the Facebooks or the Apples. I give tech, you know, A, A minus. I'm very impressed. Impressed they move so quickly and for whatever their motives were. All right. Some companies have doubled down on staying in Russia, like Coke Industries. It's president and COO wrote in a statement that, quote, we will not walk away from our employees there or hand them these manufacturing facilities to the Russian government so it can operate and benefit from them. Doing so would only put our employees at greater risk and do more harm than good. Does he have a legitimate point? No. Why is that? Explain. It is an excuse for cowardice. Any company would have that. Any company that has a significant workforce, and many of the companies we talked about did have significant workforces, they could all say that. I mean, what we're talking about so far, Kara, and I, I should mention this, we haven't mentioned this anywhere, but it looks like the numbers we have is we have just above 23% of the Russian GDP of these voluntary a corporate-led uh, retreats. This has nothing to do directly with the economic sanctions, which are a large percent of the Russian GDP. But that's incredible impact, and that's because these companies have, you know, have stalled down. You want civil society to come to a halt to show a totalitarian is not truly in total control because you know that's a one way to weaken them. So the goal here is to get Russia to be such a pariah that people push Putin out. That is your thought. Yes, is the one is Putin is not in power. Because he's loved, as obviously he's feared. Well, uh, and, some and, people do. That's not true, Jeff. I have a lot well, of. Who's going to uh, honestly answer though an opinion survey in Russia? But he's there not as a legitimate democratic leader. Of course, he's there by brute force. Do we take him on because the coercive, bloody reign, which means war, or do we take him on by the aura of totalitarian? effectiveness that he claims he has, if you can take on the totalitarian side and show that he doesn't have the control he does, then he loses support. And also the symbolic messaging here, everything we've talked about is substantive. The symbolic side, Bishop Tutu uh, had told me personally, Desmond Tutu in the early 90s, that the symbolic side of the corporate pullout of South Africa was as important as was the substantial hit to their economy. And by the way, it was a big sacrifice for companies. People forget. So this is a South Africa moment. When in 1980s and 90s, when businesses finally boycotted the country to protest apartheid. Yes, uh, South Africa was a watershed moment. This is independently happening and no coercive hands of government. Only do we hear the president of Ukraine call out Nestle's as he did yesterday. In specific. Yes, is so we Nestle we, remains there, correct? Yeah, largely. Uh, largely. After that call out, there's some slight pullback. You know, it's, it's so interesting because my son knows that. He was like, Nestle's still there, mom. This is a 16-year-old. And he's like, we're not using Nestle products. It was really interesting. Can we hire him? I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. So let me give you some pushback. South Africa worked because there was strong Western unity in the U.S. and in Europe. 
Now China is ascendant. You had only one Asian company at that CEO forum. That's not representative of the continent or the country's economic power. Russia has approached them for military and economic aid. Chinese banks and businesses may be happy to do business in Moscow. And this is where ultimately, ultimately revised the Western world order. Uh, y- y- we worry about certainly the creation of a, of a new Axis powers. And, but we take a look at what's China doing is the largest banks of China, ICBC, which is one of the top three banks in the world, including every Western bank, ICBC, which is surprisingly progressive on a lot of fronts and, and not even lending to flimsy Chinese companies that the Ministry of Finance wanted them to do. It's amazing. ICBC has said no to uh, helping Russia out with credit. Also, Bank of China has said no to helping out. And, and then also their version of an XM bank and things like that, which is China sponsored, has said no to all Russia. In fact- So is that directed by the government? Because China's been very tough on the tech sector. Chinese government has. It does have control of a lot of these entities. It does. And it's impossible that Xi Jinping doesn't know about this. It's coming from the Ministry of Finance in China, which can really controls these banks. So it's hard to say if this will be a South Africa moment right now. If you had a bet, because the fundamentals are different, the U.S. is not the sole driver. China's a big player. If you had to bet, do you think this is that South Africa moment? Putin's staying power is is pretty strong. It's interesting that I believe that nobody in the top levels of a Western governments has any idea that if there's a Brutus moment, although last week was the Ides of March and he got past it, if anybody was, anybody was going to take Thank Putin you, Lindsey out, Graham. Thank you, Lindsey yes, Graham. Thank you. <laughs> so, so that's a no, which is, in which case, what's the point of squeezing the Russian people in the economy? Is there an argument to be made? Or you think it will eventually have an effect? You just don't know. It is eventually having an effect, such a corrosive thing it, that the most likely option is that Putin has to pull back and there's some face-saving territorial compromise, a negotiated, uh, you can't call it peaceful <laughs> negotiation, but some sort of a, a negotiated solution where there's very little confidence is going to be a lasting one, but it's something which stops the mass slaughter right now. And then Putin goes back you know, with his tail between his legs uh, trying to claim victory and he'll have to deal with his domestic consequences on that. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like our conversation with former Disney CEO, Bob Iger, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Jeffrey Sonnenfeld after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com starts. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. 
I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Let's talk about the overall. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon recently said, and I recently interviewed him also, that it's not the job of businesses to decide whether to ostracize Russia. It's the government's job. Do companies need to have a point of view on everything? Uh, the slippery slope argument that people use in the business community is uh, look at the array of injustices in the world and different governmental regimes that we're not a business to be a humanitarian social change operations. And the old Milton Friedman argument, by the way, uh, of course, about the bottom line is the only responsibility of business. And I love David Solomon. I think he's a terrific CEO. But no matter who you are on this planet, you can't ignore that bombing children's hospitals is not a good thing. If there's anything you can do to condemn the people that are doing that, you should do that. So this one's not a hard one, but on other things, let's talk about Disney CEO Bob Chapek's initial silence on Florida's don't say gay bill. It's turned into a fiasco for him. He's had fiasco after fiasco, actually. What did you think of that? And what will happen to him? You know, uh, I've uh, studiously avoided comment on this one, uh, but I will comment because I, I have no escape. Is Bob Iger had a much more developed public presence Yes. His values uh, perhaps were not the exact same as Bob Chabak's either, but in terms of his comfort in public discourse, Bob Iger was very smooth and one of the most underestimated new CEOs when he took over. But at this stage, they thought they, they kind of had it right and weren't going to worry about a slightly different politics of Bob Chabak versus Bob Iger. But it's sort of the, the maladroitness there. I think he's learning on the job and it's expensive learning, but I, I, I would not write Chabak off for having gotten this one wrong because he's learning quickly now, not only who his workforce is, but the role of a CEO there. I think I'd give him a, an opportunity to uh, to see this as uh, expensive training. So you think he's fine? You think he handled it well, the recovery? No, I, but I, I think he and the company are learning how to handle this better. And he's gotten undercut even from Governor DeSantis when they made statements that we were trying to work privately behind the scenes. Yeah, he got hit on all sides. Yeah. yeah, so he was out on a limb that then got sawed off. So it was a terrible spot to be in. And I give so him- So what do you, you imagine know, is going to happen? Do you think he's going to learn? Do you think he's in any trouble? In this case, I think they definitely need to learn like how not to fight the critics, but embrace critics, embrace the, and, and I think they're going to, and it's more than just spin. It's showing okay. uh, that you have so a, a great pipeline. So he probably should do an interview with a well-known lesbian reporter of media and tech, for example. Anyway, a similar dynamic happened last year after Georgia passed a bill restricting voting rights. Delta and Coca-Cola were initially silent about it until it was pressured by the public. Do you think that was a misstep? It was a huge misstep. And I took them on in the Newsweek column. They had this constructive engagement nonsense where they thought they were convincing the, the governor of Georgia to not come out with the ridiculous voting restrictions that had no justifications. And worse than the access restrictions was the political intervention in the validation of whose ballots count, which was missed by many of the voting rights groups, is the worst part is what happens after people vote, is that the companies didn't engage. They learned their lesson and they spun on that. Okay. Let me ask you, does employee activism fit into this equation? You mentioned that Disney has employees walking out. 
Microsoft had to change its tune on PAC donations due to employee strife. Do you think it works? Huge, huge. That's my, that's my big learning for me is the importance of internal voice at the professional service firms and the tech companies. The professional service firms, they don't have investors that need to worry about. They don't have a lot of consumer boycotts. So those critical, sensitive constituencies weren't what helped drive these guys to move so quickly. It was the huge internal dissent by employees who had revulsion about their exposure in those countries that was so noteworthy. That's a big change. I've never seen that in my lifetime. There's one firm, it's a major firm that is not with the pack on this. They're right now, as I learned yesterday, at, uh, facing a, a walkout of some of the most senior people in this firm, and that's going to be devastating to them. And so, yeah, I think employee voice has been critical. And I wish we saw more of that employee voice, by the way, in the voting rights, because we didn't. Yeah, we did What's happening yeah. in Texas and Florida with tech companies yeah. and things that should be speaking out more. I think they get weary. I think they get weary. Well, we're going to put too much pressure on CEOs already. I mean, the 1960s social change movement had clergy walking together across face, hands in hands, and all these trade unions and employee groups that spoke out. Employees need to speak up for whatever they want. Employees have to. And and the, the Russian retreat is the proof they should have done that on voting rights. So let me ask, are corporations now meant to be on the side of the left, really? Or they get a lot of CEOs are dismissed as woke CEOs. DeSantis did that with Chapek in Florida. I was astonished by that. But did they have to just ignore it? Laugh at it. When people say to CEOs, get back in your lane, this is the lane of business. What do they think the right lane is? The breakdown lane? The social impact is very critical. Understanding uncertainties and technological disruption where you're second to none, of course, are very important. Understanding, of course, uh, changing demography and understanding new competitors and all the rest. Of it, they're very important in all operational changes in business and things. However, this is also part of the social context of business. When de Tocqueville came, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States as, as a French jurist to understand oh our God, legal system. going to de Tocqueville, but go ahead. He understood that and Democracy in America was his book in 1840. He said, it's not the tightness of our laws that make things work here. It's something that people think was created last year called social capital. This is as important as financial capital. It's public trust. None of these CEOs want angry workforces. They don't want communities finger pointing. So out of self-interest, they want social harmony. That makes for a better enterprise. You have so to have trust. They not in- care if they're called woke CEOs and they it's- seem like they're with the left. A lot better to be awake than asleep. That's right. Oh, all right. Last question. You also consulted, you've written about this, with Donald Trump before his presidential run. You told him not to do it. Do you think he's going to run again? Uh, No. I think he wants to create a lot of that noise. I think he won't be able to because of all the, the legal complications. And there's certainly a lot of leaders in the Republican Party that are hoping he won't ranging from yes, you know, DeSantis to Romney. There's quite a portfolio on that. So I think that it's not likely, but it's possible. Would corporations back him if he does run again? No. No. There would be a revolution in all those critical constituencies they, they spoke about. And you know what? They didn't support him when he ran in either of his elections. Our CEO summits, the, the secret here is, and I'll tell you this, Kyra, is that 70% of our participants are Republicans, 65, 70%. And Donald Trump came to one of our CEO summits before he was president. And some of the, the most vocal, prominent Republican business leaders today were in that room. They said if he walks in the room, that clown walks in the room was the expression of one of the biggest financiers still active today. I'm walking out. And you know what? He walked in. We were at the Waldorf. He walked in and the whole top tier walked out. And so, you know, I reminded Trump about that in January 2017. He said, well, Jeff, they're all coming by here now. I said, well, why do you think that is? But they did show up. I wrote a whole piece when all the tech CEOs 
lined up like sheep and walked right into Trump Tower. You did write about that. And I asked a few of them that were there about that. And they told me they were glad that he seemed to be listening. And there was a lot of enthusiasm. That was in December of uh, after, the, after the election. But then in 2017, they went off to these advisory councils and maintained that excitement, but melted down by February because his, his modus operandi is divide and conquer. So they were they Pollyannas? Yes, they were naive and hoping that they could manipulate him. And they did get, of course, concessions on the tax front. But on the regulatory front, very few business leaders wanted the sustainability and climate change rollbacks. In fact, the energy So they got what they wanted, Jeff, correct? A little bit. They got the taxes, but- But let me just say, when I had a discussion with one of them and they said, we're going to change his mind. And I go, guess what? You're not Jesus. It's not happening. This guy is very clear in what he said. I must tell you, I thought he would pivot more to the center than he did. Uh, No, exactly. Peter Thiel will always be there. That's what we have to keep in mind. Anyway, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Reza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, like an Uncle Vanya's burger with a side of freedom fries, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.